Wow, what a great way to start a Sunday. Man, that's great. Incredible film. Uh, my name is Eli. I'm the discipleship minister here at Hope Ankeny, and we're in the middle of a, a message series called Faith on Film, where we're using some films that have recently come out in the last year or so to talk about important biblical concepts. And my wife and I actually went and saw Wonder Woman when it was in theaters last year, which I know doesn't sound all that exciting to you, but when you have two kids under four, it was a really big deal to us that we went. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it's the type of movie that we talked about on the way home uh, in the car. We didn't have that high of expectations for it. I mean, the superhero genre films have been around for a long time. Uh, it's kind of hard to get excited about a lot of them these days. Um, and, and people didn't have much of expectations for this movie either. Wonder Woman has actually already been made. And so is there anything new we can see from this character or from this genre? And it surprised everybody. You know, a relatively low budget, but it ended up earning uh, three times what it cost to make, four times what it cost to make. It was given some, some critical awards. Uh, people are actually surprised that the, the director didn't receive any best director um, recognition because for the very first time in the history of these superhero blockbuster type movies, they had a woman direct it because, duh, it's Wonder Woman. So, and the, the production history of the film was interesting. These things don't get made overnight. It took about 15 years for this movie to make it to screen. And they had tried different directors with you know, big names and they were guys and it just didn't feel right. So when Patty Jenkins joined the project, she, she changed how a superhero movie could look and feel with her unique perspective. And, and again, people's expectations were, were far exceeded, including mine. Great movie to watch. Um, I think one of the reasons why this movie was so compelling, why it drew people's attention in a unique way is because the character itself, Wonder Woman as a character is unique. Uh, she, she, there's nothing really like her in the history of, of comics. If you go all the way back to when comic books first began, kind of the golden age of comics in the 30s and 40s, a lot of the characters were very much the same. And a man named William Marsden, who wasn't a comic book writer, he wasn't a writer or an artist of any kind, he was actually a psychologist and a psychology professor at a university. He saw comic books, because all of his students kept bringing them in, and he thought, these characters would be a great way for me to teach psychology and philosophy to my students, because the characters presented some of those, those ideas and those characteristics. So, and it's not unlike what we're doing in this, in this message series, using some pop culture to help us understand concepts. The, uh, the superhero character type itself actually came more from psychology and philosophy. Way back in the 1800s, Friedrich Nietzsche was writing a philosophy about what, what would be the ideal human being? What would that look like? How could we attain that? What would this ideal human look like? And in German, because he spoke German, uh, he called this ideal human the Ubermensch, which when you translate that into English, you get Superman. And they continue to develop the idea, and all of a sudden you see Superman show up in the pages of comics. But what Marsden recognized and realized is that all these superheroes, again, they're, they're very similar to each other. They have some, every once in a while, a little bit of a difference, but really, it comes down to their, their guys, most of them, and they have superior physical strength. That's, that's basically all it is. They are physically more powerful than their enemies. 
And, and, and the narrative is that these, these physically powerful men would go in to rescue the woman in trouble, and, and they would use their physical power to overwhelm the enemy, and that's the story. And Marsden said, well, there's a whole side of humanity that's missing from that that I would like to be able to teach and maybe even offer the public. So he gave an interview after he started creating this comic, and he said, I wanted to create a character that would conquer not with fists and firepower, but with love. Wouldn't it be amazing if we developed a character that didn't just physically overwhelm people, they, they loved, they cared for people enough to do something. And you see that in the clip that we watched. It carries over to the way the character is still written today. Diana, the alter ego of uh, real life name of, of Wonder Woman, real life, she's not real. In the story, the na- her name, anyway. Diana is with this group of, of men who are, it's set in World War I, and, and you see the guys are all on mission, right? They have blinders on, and they are singularly focused on the, the goal of, they don't even have a plan, but it's getting to the bad guy to beat up the bad guy. That's what the guys want to do, and that's where they're focused, and they need to overwhelm the bad guys with superior firepower. But Diana, Wonder Woman, notices there are people caught in the crossfire of this conflict, There are innocent bystanders who have nothing to do with this, who are being oppressed, who are being killed and starved, and we need to do something. She cares enough to act on the behalf of people who can't act for themselves. If you were here last week when Pastor Scott kicked off this message series, he talked about a a possible definition of love, that love pays attention. Love pays attention to people around us, and that's what you see in this character. Now, when we, we set out to do this message series, uh, Faith on Film, we, we didn't just uh, throw together a bunch of movies that we wanted to talk about and then try to fit them together, even though I was really excited to get to talk about this one, obviously. Uh, we, we actually knew that after Easter Sunday, we were going to be looking at what, what are the foundational passages of Scripture that we should be paying attention to after having reflected on the power and the love of Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we wanted this very next series to be about diving deeper into the character of God, the identity of Jesus, and how much God loves us. So John 3.16 had to be a part of this series, and we felt like this movie really captured some of the ideas that... Honestly, because John 3.16 is so popular, even if this is the first time you've ever been in a church before, I bet you heard of at least the the passage reference, John 3.16. It's just that well-known. But what often happens with popular things, with well-known ideas and verses from the Bible, is we we forget what they're really about. We forget what their deeper core meaning is. And and so we want to take this kind of slow today. If you have your Bible, you can open up to John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at a bigger section than this, but it starts, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that. God so loved the world that. Now, we stopped in the middle here because we wanted to point out that when we, when we read familiar scripture passages like this, we tend to insert our own translation into the idea, right? That we think that this, is, this just says God loves you, which he does, it's true. But how does God love you? Love is a, is, a, is a kind of word in English that I think has lost a lot, of its, a lot of its power, a lot of its weight. We have all kinds of words like this that they, they once meant something that you did, and now they mean simply ideas or things that we think about, we consider them. There's an idea of love, a philosophy about love, but in reality, love is an action word. It's a verb. 
You can't divorce the idea of love from the actions that show love. We'll be comparing some scripture too, back and forth. So John wrote the gospel of John, his account of Jesus' life, and he also wrote some letters to the church. In 1 John 3.18, he says, Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. If I say I love my wife, if I tell her I love you, but I go around treating her badly or insulting her, putting her down, even just, you know, the opposite of what we talked about last week, if I fail to pay attention to her, I don't really love her. I can say I love her until I'm blue in the face all day long, but if I don't show it by the way I live my life, then I am a liar. It's not true because love is an action. God loved us so much that he did something about it. And what was that thing? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And here again, when we move too quickly through it, we we self-translate, we apply meaning. We, We tend to read this as God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for us. And that's not all of what's encompassed there. That's true. But there's more to Jesus's life than his death. Let me say that again. There's more to Jesus' life than his death. Now, his death on the cross, vital, absolutely pivotal in his life. It was the most profound act of love that he gave for us, but there's still more to that. He gave a lot more than just his physical life. If you read in Philippians chapter 2, part of it's on your screen there. It starts in verse 6. Philippians 2, 6 says, Though he, though Jesus was God... Though he was God. Just think about that for a minute. Jesus was God. That means he knew what existence was like for eternity in perfection. All wisdom, all power, all knowledge, past, present, and future. He was God. Philippians 2.6 says, He did not consider equality with God something to take advantage of. Instead, 2.7, he gave up his divine privileges. He gave all of that up for you. We sang about it in in the last song that that the worship team sang for us. He brought heaven down to us, giving up eternity, giving up power, giving up the presence of the Father, all of that to be here. That was how severe our situation was, stuck in sin and darkness that no less than God himself coming down to rescue us would do. Now, I'm not God, and it's a really good thing that I'm not, but if I were and I had knowledge of all eternity, past, present, and future, and I knew that there would come such a day that had things like air conditioning and indoor plumbing and the internet, I would probably choose to show up then as opposed to 2,000 years ago in the desert when the Bible says it was the appointed time. Why was that? For the very first time in history, a world power with a common language and technology showed up and intersected with God's people in Jerusalem. God shows up then and his message is able to spread throughout the entire world within one generation. But he had to show up then, knowing that it would be an incredibly uncomfortable life and then the most painful death you could experience, that's, the, that's part of what all God gave for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And he's still doing it. Again, at Easter, Jesus is alive. Jesus rose from the grave. He overcame death. And when he ascended into heaven, as he was ascending, he said this to the disciples, Matthew 28, 20, the last words of Jesus, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is still fighting for you on your behalf. 
He is still for you. He is still giving of himself in love for you. One of the, this was one of the really iconic scenes from the clip we watched. You can picture it. I mean, it's when Wonder Woman is, is behind her shield and she's taking just round after round of machine gun fire and it's, it's completely bearing her down, but you hear Steve Trevor, uh, the, the character played by Chris Pine, he yells out to his comrades in the trench, she's taking all of the fire. And because she was taking all of the fire, that allowed them to advance and to be victorious. And that's a picture, I think, of what Jesus has done for us. He has taken all of the fire. He has taken our sin. He has taken the evil of this world on himself so that in this life and in eternity, we can be victorious if we put our trust and our faith in him. If we believe, that's the rest of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The next slide says that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So the first part tells us what God did. The next part tells us what we can do. And again, here are some more words that I think, like love, have lost some of their their potency because we've turned them away from action and into ideas. Words like grace, Ephesians 2.8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And what does that word mean? We sing about grace all the time, almost every week. We talk about it, we pray about it, we tell each other about it. What is this word grace? Is it just another concept, an idea, something ambiguous that we can't really nail down? It says you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. So grace is a gift. It's free. It's something that you can't earn, you can't buy, you can't live up to. God offers this grace freely, but even that for me is difficult to understand because it still sounds like an an ambiguous idea. I want to know, what does grace do? The Bible tells us that love gives, love sacrifices. What does grace do? Anytime I ask those questions, I tend to look all the way back to the, the original manuscripts of the Bible. So the Bible was written in the Old Testament in ancient Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. We still have those manuscripts that have been translated into our language and into thousands of languages around the world. And so looking back at them can kind of help us understand a little bit about what these words mean. So the Hebrew root word where we get the word grace, is, it's right here on the screen. It's pronounced chen. Everybody say chen. It's, yeah, it's all the way back there. Really get your throat into it, chen. And then wipe off the person's head in the front of you. <laughs> Apologize afterwards. Chen is a root word in Greek, or in, in Hebrew, meaning that they use that root to build other words. So the word for grace is like the, it's the beginning of the name Hannah. Uh, which means God has shown me grace. And a lot of the derivations from this root word have to do with mercy, right? With our idea of, the, of grace. But there's one word that's derivative that is, it stands out. It's henen, and it means camp in Hebrew. What's that about? When that, those two ideas seem really far apart to me. Grace and camp. It, to me, camping is something you do when it's not snowing in the middle of April. You get to go outside, you get a bunch of friends together, you put more food in a cooler than you could ever possibly eat in one night, you take it all the way out there, and then you bring most of it back and put it in the fridge. That's just what camping is, and it's fun. But for the ancient Hebrews, the camp was something incredibly sacred, important. The camp was something that God actually gave to them. 
When, when they left the, the empire of Egypt back in the book of Exodus, they were wandering in the wilderness, but God gave them specific instructions for how to live. Tens of thousands of people together. This was a big, big group of people wandering, and God showed them how to organize themselves into a camp. Right at the center of the camp would be the, the tabernacle, the traveling temple of God where his presence would be with his people, and then they would organize the tribes in circles radiating out from the center because the circle configuration was the safest way to protect the camp. It meant that there was a perimeter all the way around the outside. And so when the Hebrew people think of the word camp and they use the root word grace, what they're saying is that the camp is where I'm safe. The camp is where I find God's protection, that that's where I can go to be with him and with his people in safety. And outside of that, outside of the camp, is darkness, is chaos, is danger, and I don't want to be out there. I want to be with God's people where I am safe. And so that's what grace does. It makes us safe. It protects us. And then it says in Ephesians 2.8, when you believe, that's even easier. The root word where we get our word believe from simply relates to the word for desire or love. That's what it means to believe, to desire, to agree with such that you, you love it, you want it. So if we put all of these exegetical elements together, what you get sounds something like this. God protects us when we desire it. By grace you have been saved when you believe in it. Sounds like God protects us when we desire it. God's love for you is free. There's nothing you can do to earn it, and we definitely don't deserve it. He came down from heaven and brought light so that we could be set free from the darkness that has enslaved us. And all we have to do to get that, to have access to it, is to say to God, I want it. I love you in return in the way that you loved me. Now, again, the way that we love God is not meant to be the idea of love, the weak, you know, sort of notions about love. It's the same love that God gave us. It's sacrificial. It's saying, God, I love you so much that I'm going to give myself to you. I surrender all of who I am to you. I want your will to be done in my life. That's what it means to believe in God, is to desire that relationship with him. And we kind of take this idea of the, of the camp even further with the rest of John chapter 3. Th this is really pathetic. I did that. If you have graphic design skills, help me. Don't, don't make me keep doing this. That's supposed to be like a campfire. Go with me. And, and the, cam the camp is, is structured around it, okay? So in John chapter 3, verse 19, it continues this idea of what it means to belong to the grace of God to be living in God's protection. And it said in verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save it. And in verse 19, it says, this is what judgment is, the definition of judgment. It's based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. God's light has come down. He brought heaven down with him and it exists fully available to us to come into that relationship, to be a part of God's grace, his protection, and we have access to it, all we have to do is step inside. But we love darkness more than we love the light. And it says in, in verse 20 and 21 why that would be, because when you, when you live in darkness, it's a lot easier to hide. You know, the things about our lives that we're not proud of, that we don't want people to find out about, in darkness, we can keep those a secret. 
When we bring them into the light of God's grace, they're exposed. They're also forgiven and you're freed from them, but they're exposed and that's hard. When we're in the darkness, when we're outside of the camp, we get to be whatever we want to be. There aren't, there aren't, any, there aren't any rules for how to belong to the camp. There's no structure. We can, we can have it to ourselves. And that's pretty appealing to a lot of people. But you miss out on the benefit of belonging to God's protection, both in this life and the next. God said you'll receive everlasting life. Being inside of the protection of God's grace has eternal significance and weight. And real evil comes from, and the darkness comes from our lives when we self-select out of God's grace and choose that instead of the light of his love. Not about what you deserve, it's about what you believe. We don't deserve God's love. He offers it to us freely. That relationship is open to you even today, even if you're experiencing this for the first time. The way that Jesus came was not how the world expected God to show up. The world expects God to show up with fists and firepower, overwhelming strength and, 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 and terrifying results. That's, maybe that's how you think God shows up in your life, that he's here to punish you, to judge you, to beat you up for the things that have gone wrong in your life. And instead, God conquered with love. Jesus Christ coming down, taking on human flesh, becoming a person, living life as a person, and then sacrificing himself on the cross. God knows what you're going through because he lived it. He lived the human experience. He knows where you are, and he loves you. He wants that relationship with you, if you want it in return. C.S. Lewis, who is a a well-known Christian author and theologian, he said, there are only two types of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, Those who look at God and say, I receive your love and I'm loving you back. I'm desiring this relationship. I want to give all of myself to you. And there are those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Those to whom God says, if you you don't want to be a part of this, if you don't want to be in my protection, experiencing the warmth and the power of my love and my grace, if you don't want it, the darkness is available to you. And you can have that if you really want it. God doesn't force his love on anybody. Otherwise, it wouldn't fit the definition of love and God wouldn't fit the definition of God. God's love is available to you and because it's loving, it isn't forced. This also shows us, because we have a responsibility for our relationship with God to reciprocate his love, we also, it shows us, we have a responsibility for the love we have for each other the love of our neighbors. This is an idea that that John continues in his letters. He says, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, surely we ought to love each other. Surely we ought to show love for our neighbors. The, The greatest command, Jesus said, was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might, with everything that you have. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. How are we loving our neighbors? You know, I, I can't be a superman for people in this world who need help. I don't have superior physical strength. That's obvious. I can't leap tall buildings in a single bound. I'm not faster than a speeding bullet. I can't conquer with fists and firepower the problems of this world. But I think I could conquer some problems by paying attention, by caring, by by stepping off of my vision of what my life should be like and helping people who don't have the ability to help themselves 
taking fire for somebody, allowing them to advance in life. This is one of my, my personal um, heroes of the Christian faith, an artistic representation of a, a man named William Wilberforce, who was a, a member of the British Parliament in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And at that time, slavery was still a, a legal part of the economy in Great Britain, and it was an important part of the economy of Great Britain. And Wilberforce wasn't himself a believer in Jesus Christ until he had already become a member of parliament and he met a preacher named uh, John Newton. John Newton famously wrote Amazing Grace, the hymn. And he wrote that hymn after he had already spent basically a lifetime and a career as a slave ship captain. And John Newton, after his conversion experience, said that he still felt personally responsible for the deaths of over 20,000 African slaves during his career of ferrying people from Africa to the Indies. God opened John Newton's eyes and he realized how corrupt and how dark that practice was, how it needed to change and how they were taking advantage of an entire race of people. He, 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 he once was blind and God opened his eyes and made him see. And so he, he talked about that kind of love with William Wilberforce and Wilberforce gave his life to Jesus, and then he spent the next 46 years of his career in Parliament fighting the slave trade, giving all of himself to that cause for neighbors, brothers and sisters who he would never actually get a chance to meet. They passed the, the, the bill that would completely abolish slavery in 1833, and Wilberforce died three days later. He spent his life for that mission. I, I chose that clip because I was, as I was preparing this message, what came to mind when, uh, when Wonder Woman is taking all the fire and she's overwhelmed by round after round, I thought of that clip where William Wilberforce is standing one against dozens, taking shouts and, and, and insults, shouting down the people who are trying to overwhelm him, and he's taking fire for people who can't do it for themselves. And it makes me think that that's something that each of us could be doing for the people in our lives or around the world who need us to pay attention. I don't, I doubt it's a coincidence. I don't think it is. But John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16 have a lot to do with each other. And I'm glad because I would hope one day that 1 John 3.16 is as memorable. So John 3.16 tells us about what God's love looks like for us. And 1 John 3.16 says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So also we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. And I wonder who in your life you might be willing to take fire for, to be able to bring light into their dark places, to introduce them to the warmth of Jesus's grace and a relationship with a God who loves them so much that he gave up everything so that they could have everlasting life. Would you stand and pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the time that you've given us here today, and I, I pray that you would help each one of us as we leave this place to uh, receive from you a word about where we can be helping, where we can be loving, God, paying attention. Help us to know what that looks like, and I pray uh, that if there's anyone in this room who still doesn't know about the love and the grace and what it's like to be a part of your family uh, protected forever, God, I pray that, uh, that this would be a moment for them where, where new life comes in. Thank you for, for giving your son for us and for all of what that meant. Thank you that he lived. Thank you that he died and rose again. Thank you that we still have an advocate in heaven in Jesus Christ. We love you and thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.